if you've got your Bibles with, with you this morning, um, open them up to the, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, and I want to encourage you that um, if you do not have a Bible with you this morning, uh, there are some trays, I think, behind each of the sections that have some Bibles on them. Uh, we'd love for you to grab one. You can get up right now and grab one. Uh, ask somebody next to you to grab one. Uh, that's the Bible that I'm going to use this morning, so you'll, you'll know where we are, and that's our gift to you. If you don't have one, please keep it. Um, it's got some great guidance in it and how to read it and how to use it. And if you want, just grab me, grab Ray, grab Chris, grab anybody next to you uh, before you leave and say, help me understand this thing that we're reading, and we'll be happy to do that. So uh, if you've got your Bible, open them up to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. And we have been looking for the last few weeks uh, at this unbelievable book of Acts, and we're going to take a great portion of the year uh, to walk through it and to understand it in a greater measure but for the last couple of weeks, we've been primarily in chapters 1 and chapters 2 of the book of Acts, and, and we've been stuck for the last couple of days in what we have said arguably might be one of the most influential days in human history. I mean, one of the top five days in human history. And I'm not the mathematician raised much better with the numbers than I am, but if we were to count how many days there are in a year and how many years there are in a century and how many centuries there are in a millennium and we're to make our best guess to go back to whatever might be the time when we might be able to say, depending upon where you fall theologically, that man first appeared on the earth, all of those days combined, we're talking about one of the top five days in all of human history. And God in his grace had it recorded for us in the book of Acts and Acts chapter 2. So if you're using one of the Bibles we're giving you, it's on page 778. And I'm going to catch you up to what we've done, and then we're going to look at one of the most uh, enjoyed, um, referenced, taught, picked apart, and sometimes misunderstood passages in all of the Bible in, in Acts chapter 2. But so far, from Acts chapter 1, what we have seen is we have seen Pete, Luke catching us up on, on the first volume that he wrote, the Gospel of Luke, the biography of the person and, and work of Jesus, and his second volume of his great work that he wrote to instruct uh, his readers was this book called The Acts. And, and we looked from the very beginning that as we go through the Acts, we have to remind ourselves that we're not talking about the Acts of just people. We're not talking about Acts just of the Holy Spirit. He's very clear to us in his writing that we're talking about the Acts of the risen and resurrected Jesus Christ. Luke is recording for us all that Jesus began to do and teach and all that he continues to do and teach. And so he starts off the book of Acts by reminding his readers what he had already done in his gospel of Luke and telling us who Jesus was and reminding us of Jesus' victory over sin and over death in our place and God raising him from the dead and how after God raised him from the dead, he reappeared to his disciples who had been traveling with him and who had been with him throughout his ministry. And for 40 days, he, he spent time with his disciples, convincing them of the reality of his resurrection, taking them to the Old Testament scriptures and showing them how everything that had been written, everything that they had learned, everything that they had hoped for was always pointing to him and now fulfilled in him. And it was a marvelous time that he had with them. And then Luke reminds us that with all the height of their anticipation for what that must mean, I mean, here he is. He has defeated what we could never defeat. He has defeated Satan. He has defeated sin. He has defeated death. And here Jesus is with us. And with all of the hope of what God had promised that he would do in making all that had gone wrong with sin right, the, the disciples looked at Jesus and said, now when are you going to fulfill this thing? When are you going to finish it? When are you going to establish your kingdom? When are you going to rule and reign? And when are God's people going to reign over the rest of the nations instead of being subjugated by the rest of the nations? And Jesus, once again, took that as a great teaching opportunity to tell them they had always missed the point. And he looked at them that last time, and he said, no, here's what you don't understand. Here's what's going to happen. You are going to be my witnesses. 
This is how this is going to play out. I'm not going to march into Jerusalem. I'm not going to march into Rome. I'm not going to march up to Caesar. I'm not going to demand his throne because of who I am. Here's what I'm going to do. I am going to empower you through the very spirit that raised me from the dead to be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and to all the ends of the earth. That's how it's going to work. And before they probably had a chance to actually ask any questions or say anything, here's how I'd like to see it. And one day when we see him and can see all of this played out, we'll know exactly what happened. But I like to think that before they could really ask any questions and, 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 and pepper Jesus with too many things, he just ascended. Right before their eyes, Luke said, he ascended. And left with that great mission and that great promise of empowerment and fulfillment, the disciples looked around and just saw a couple of angels. And the angel said, what are you looking at? Why are you just standing there looking in the sky? Get on about your business. And we took some time to look at their response and how their response demonstrated a, an obedience to Jesus, an obedience to his word. And they returned to Jerusalem where we found them in the end of Luke chapter 1, I mean Acts chapter 1, waiting, waiting for Jesus to, to bring that promise, to bring that power that he had given them. They had recognized the magnitude of the mission that he had sent them on and the limited resources that they had to be who he was calling them to be and do what he was calling them to do. And so in obedience marked and characterized by dependence upon him and a desperation for his presence. We find them in the end of Acts chapter 1, waiting in Jerusalem, together praying, praying in desperation that they would not have the promises of God without the presence of God and the empowering of God. And then we continue to see this day that started in Acts chapter 2. Luke said, when the day of Pentecost has, had arrived... And the rest of Luke chapter 2 is going to record this day, this unbelievable, unrepeatable day in human history. That going from the ascension, we see God fulfilling his promise that he had given his people centuries before, that Jesus had reminded them of days before. And as they gathered together at Pentecost, in prayer, awaiting the promise of God to be fulfilled in their midst, he did that very thing. And he sent his promised Holy Spirit. And we talked about that uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we unpacked that and, and some of the ways that we understand that and, and misread that. But on that day, God fulfilled a long-standing and long-awaited promise that he would fill his people with his spirit and that he would take from them the heart of stone that had so long rejected him and given them a heart of flesh. And on that heart of flesh would be written his laws. And, and on that heart of flesh, and empowered and sustained and regenerated by his spirit, we would now want to honor him. We would now want to trust him. We would now want to enjoy him. And his spirit would reside in us, not just around us and not just with us and not just near us, but the very spirit that raised him from the dead that hovered over the waters of the deep in the beginning when all things were made now lives in us, continuing to conform us and transform us into the image of his son to be who he's called us to be and to do what he has called us to do, that God fulfilled that promise on that day, Pentecost day, Acts chapter 2. And from there, that day in the midst of the craziness, in the midst of the confusion, in the midst of what was going on as people began to gather to, to figure out what was happening. What, what were they seeing? What were they experiencing? We saw last week in the middle of Acts chapter 2 that Peter, they were the reluctant preacher, he stood up, empowered by the Holy Spirit, in the midst of the chaos and the confusion, was the ultimate evangelist and opportunist. He recognized what was going on, and he seized the opportunity. And he stood up, and he explained to all of those who had gathered, 
all of those who were seeing what God was doing, all of those who were questioning, who were amazed, who were perplexed, who were mocking. And he stood up, and under the power of the Holy Spirit, he explained to them what they were seeing. He took a text from the Old Testament a couple of times, and he explained how Jesus was the fulfillment of that promise and of that text, and this that they were seeing was the fulfillment of that that they had always heard. He did good preaching. He took a text. He explained its context. He showed how it was fulfilled in the person of Jesus, and then he began to apply it to their life. And he said, this Jesus who you crucified, this Jesus who you crucified, and he began to explain to them under the power of the Holy Spirit the realities of their sin and the fulfillment of God's promise to make right what our sin had made wrong. And he preached the, res- the lordship and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then he called all of those in his hearing, all of those who had gathered, all of those who were now listening to respond. To respond in the simplicity of repentance and, and baptism. And this is what we talked about last week and where we kind of ended and we're going to pick up this week because it's going to come right on the heels of that. And I want to point out a few things as we get going because um, I don't want you to miss the humanity of this whole thing. You to always read this, listen to this, engage your Bibles, and, and remember the humanity of what's going on here. Don't, don't miss that at the beginning of that day, how many people were with Jesus when he ascended a few days before? Around 12. And when they gathered together to pray, and were praying at the beginning of this particular day, there were about 120. And then God fulfills his promise in their midst, and People begin to gather to see what's going on, and Peter begins to speak and begins to preach and begins to call the people in attendance to repentance and baptism. We're going to see that they actually believed him. They actually listened to Peter's message. They actually listened to the witness that Peter bore, and they actually believed him. And what we're going to see in just a second is, as Luke records it, that some 3,000 actually obeyed. Don't, don't miss the humanity of what's going on here. From 12 to 120 to 3,000, all in one moment. And so when we come to the text we're going to read today, I don't want to romanticize it for you. I mean, it was a mess of human proportions. It was a huge, chaotic mess. The power of the gospel had gone forward under the power of God's Holy Spirit. The good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ had been proclaimed to all who were in attendance. And God did what only God can do in the power of the only message that has the capacity to do this that we talked about last week. People were actually cut to the heart. Their hearts were filleted wide open. Their consciences filleted wide open. They were confronted with their sin in the person of Jesus. And in response, they cried out, what do we have to do? What must we do? And how do we respond to the reality of this? And And when Peter called them to repent, they actually did. And when he called them to be baptized in recognition of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ with a public identification of that, they actually did. We talked briefly last week about the, the magnitude of that reality. These were Jewish people that he was speaking to. People who were physically marked with the covenant promise of God, of circumcision, And Peter's saying, this is the new covenant that God had always promised. The new covenant is not here. That old covenant that you had so long to identify yourself by and keep yourself pure to no longer carries the same status in this new reality. Who you were 
born into and the things that you have done and the rules that you have kept, they don't earn you anything in that. It's only trust and faith and hope in the person and work of Jesus Christ brings you into this new covenant. Repent, believe, and be baptized. And some 3,000 did. Don't miss, they had to baptize 3,000 people now. 3,000 people repented under the preaching of Peter. And now those 12 who had gathered some others and had been 120 now had to baptize 3,000. I mean, it's a good thing Jerusalem was full of pools and full of bodies of water. And it is. I'm not being funny. It's full of pools. I mean, you've got to picture this. Picture the humanity here. They're going to baptize some 3,000 people. they got to figure out how they're going to do this. And what a day in the life of God's redemptive story. The pools of Jerusalem, the baths of Jerusalem, clogged with people in line waiting to be baptized in public profession of the faith in Jesus, the fulfillment of all that they had ever learned and hoped in. It's an unbelievable moment. It's a tiring moment. But it was a very, very messy moment. Now all of a sudden, the disciples are being forced to deal with, by God's grace, some 3,000 people. Some 3,000 new believers who now had new eyes to to look at what they had once known and see it in an absolutely new way. Some 3,000 people with 3,000 sinful lives, with 3,000 people who now had to understand how what Jesus had done in their place and accomplished in their place, how that now applied and began to transform the life that they now lived. And they had to see all of this and, and understand all of this. And in the beginning of the day, there were 12 faced with 3,000. And they had to deal with this. And it was a mess. We're going to talk about this, this text in Acts chapter 2 in a minute, and I've delayed to read it because I don't want you to get too far ahead, but we're going to talk about a text that's very romanticized in the church today. If there's anything that we want, it's to try to figure out how to get back to what we see at the end of Acts chapter 2, and I want you to realize it was a mess. It was 3,000 people whose lives were a mess. And there were 12 people under God's grace charged with the process of helping those people to mature. It was a mess. And it was a mess that the Holy Spirit made. I don't want you to miss that either. The Holy Spirit made this mess. The Holy Spirit could have done anything he wanted to do. He he could have dropped policies and procedures and structures and disciplines and all kinds of things in the lap of the apostles, and he didn't do it. He dropped 3,000 people beginning to repent of their sin, being baptized in faith in Jesus, and had charged them to be his witnesses in their world and in their life. It was a mess. And if you don't believe me, just know that the rest of the New Testament is written to deal with it. It's written to deal with it. 3,000 people repenting, messy, dirty lives, coming to Jesus, falling and calling upon him in, in hope and faith and trust that he would restore them and redeem them and transform them. And these guys are left to that. And, and, and that's what we're going to begin to find in Acts chapter 2. And here's what I want you to see, and, and I hope we'll, we'll help give some, some framework to this text as we go. As those apostles and those early disciples were, were charged with the encouragement and the instruction, the teaching and the discipleship of these early believers. They were learning what it was to know who Jesus was and what he has done for them. They were also having to learn, just as we are, how the gospel transforms our understanding of ourselves. 
So just as they were learning who Jesus was and what he had accomplished and how he had fulfilled all that they had known and hoped for, they were also having to learn what difference that made to their lives, how they now saw themselves differently based on how they once understood who they were. The one thing the gospel does, and we talk about it around here all the time, and I want to remind you of it, is that the gospel absolutely rewrites the way that we understand ourselves in relation to God, in relation to other people, and in relation to ourselves fundamentally. The identity out of which we live gets transformed in the gospel. Those who were once far off have been brought near to God. No longer are we aliens and, and strangers, enemies of God. In our sin, we are now brought near to God through Jesus and made heirs. We are made his sons and his daughters. In this faith in what Jesus has done for our sin in our place, as we repent and believe and hope in that, it fundamentally begins to change the way we understand who we are. So what these guys had to begin to learn was not just what Jesus had done and how it fulfilled all these things, but how then that applied to their life and the way they saw the world around them. And one of the ways they had to begin to see themselves was as a family. They began to see that God did not create an institution through the death and resurrection of Jesus. He didn't create another business, another social club, another thing vying for their attention in the world around them. He created an all-new family. I mean, don't miss what we talked about last week or a week before last in this moment of Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit came and the promise was fulfilled, his spirit was poured out on all people. And around them, ethnicities and classes and socioeconomic differences and language barriers were absolutely devastated. And God's fulfilling his promise through Jesus in the giving of the Holy Spirit. And so as all those nations and all those peoples and all those differences had gathered, and now they find themselves in repentance giving themselves over to the person of Jesus and now being drawn together in this community, in this family, they were going to have to learn how to live together and institutions don't do that. Institutions don't help people learn how to live together. Institutions are centered on goals run by systems and structures and policies and procedures. Families are brought together by God, by his spirit and driven by his grace. And so if these people are going to have to learn how to live together and be the family of God in this place, representing and reflecting the power of God in his gospel, they're going to have to learn how to be a family. And that's what you're going to have to see as we read the last part of Acts. This isn't an institutional church that's being developed so that we can look at it and go, what did they do? What did they not do? What should we do? What should we not do? Do we have that system? Do we have that thing? This was a family. A family brought together by God himself, the Spirit himself, empowered by the Spirit himself, with marks, with DNA that can come only to a family. So hopefully you've had enough time to find Acts chapter 2, page 778. That was a runway of an introduction for you. We're going to read this text, and then we're going to talk about it. I want us to just see, I want us just to see some of these things that they've had to learn. Acts chapter 2. It would be really helpful if I was already there for you. We'll start back in verse 39. The end of Peter's sermon, he said, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness. And he continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship 
to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done to the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Pray with me as we keep going. Father, I ask that you fulfill, as you always do, your promise that your word goes forward and it does not return to you empty. And so we ask, Lord, that as we open up your word and ask that you empower our hearing and our speaking of your word this morning, that you will do what only you can do in our hearts and in our souls with your word. Cut open what needs to be cut open, expose what needs to be exposed, encourage what needs to be encouraged. And Lord, we ask that in this process, not only here together, but as we are sent out, Lord, that we would be a people who are increasingly desirous to surrender ourselves to your word, that we would come under your word to be transformed by your word so that we can live lives that would reflect your glory. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Let's take a look at a couple of things that make these guys special. There's one thing I want to point off at the very beginning because I don't want you to miss it, and it's interesting kind of grammatically as you read the text. I'd never actually noticed this thing before. But one mark of this family, one interesting thing about this family that God's Spirit had created here in Acts chapter 2 is that it was a, a growing family. Now, that's somewhat obvious, isn't it? The, the, but I want you to notice that this little passage that we're reading, this passage that we so often turn to and try to figure out what we should be doing, what we should not be doing, uh, what things should be in place, what things shouldn't be in place, it, it's bookended by two very interesting statements that Luke makes about growth. I mean, God and the inspiration of his word inspired Luke in the writing of this book to record a few statements about this family being a family that grows. You can, you can see it in verse 41, and you can see it again in verse 47. In verse 41 of Acts chapter 2, you see that in response to Peter's sermon, in response to the preaching of the gospel, and his command and call to them to repent and believe, people did. Some 3,000 were added that day. And then in verse 47, on the bookend of what we read, that kind of reflects some things about the life of this new family that God is putting together, we see that God continued to add to their number daily those who were being saved. And I don't want you to miss something that would have been obvious to the people reading this as an encouragement as we get going in this. I honestly believe that God inspired Luke to record this because before this time period, before the time of Christ being born to Mary and his ministry here on earth and his death and his resurrection and then the promised Holy Spirit, the church, the people of God, they had not been growing. The 400 years of silence prior to the birth of Jesus, not a highlight in the life of God's people. God's people had been scattered and sent and subjected in slavery. They had lost their land. They had begun to doubt the promise. God had silenced the prophets. Even in the intertestamental history, the time of that 400 years of silence before the New Testament or the birth of Jesus, we don't read a time of God's people in growth and growing. And so I think it's wise and encouraging 
that when Luke pins this history of the person and work of Jesus, of all that he began to do and teach and all that he continues to do and teach upon the fulfillment of God's promise in Jesus and the fulfillment of his promise in sending his spirit, God's people, God's family begins to grow. People begin to get saved. People begin to be added to that number. See, I think as we begin to reflect on what it means, as we've talked about, to be witnesses, to be a people who are convinced of the power of the message that God has given us. Not simply of power that we receive from the Spirit, but the power inherent in the message that we are called to bear witness to. As that happens, we should begin to expect and begin to see God working through that. We should expect to be encouraged to see people's lives beginning to change. And I want to note one thing as we read through this that I know it's a temptation for me. I don't know if it's a temptation for you. If it is, be encouraged. If it's not, you know, call it a sidebar. Verse 47, last verse that kind of bookends this. Luke records that when all is said and done with Peter's great sermon, he's gospel-centered sermon by the person of Jesus. The family's life together that we'll see in a minute that was so powerful, so attractive, so different than what the people around them had seen. When it was all said and done, none of those things added to the number of the church. It was God who added people. And I want us to be really, really careful. We've been around two and a half years. The very first night we all got together, there were 36 people. There's more than 36 people here now. There's not a lot of things that we've done differently. We've moved rooms and maybe put up curtains so you don't see mess and change certain things. But I want us to be very careful, and maybe I'm talking to myself here, and so you can come into a personal counseling session. It's nothing that we do that adds to the number to the church. People might attend. People might be curious. People might show up to see what they've heard about. But it's only God that adds to the number of his church. We can come up with all types of things to do, great sites, you know, flyers, whatever. I don't know. We actually have signs outside now. Whatever. Those might get a crowd. People might come. But it's only God that adds a number to his church. And so as we move forward in the purposes for which he's laid out for us, as we continue to be faithful and obedient to the call that he's given his church, and as we flesh that out in this local church, and we continue to move forward in obedience in the things that he's calling us to do, remember always when you lay your head down at night, it's not what you've done. It's only God that can add to the number of his church. It's only God that can fillet the heart wide open. It's only God that can lay the conscience bare. It's only God that can take the heart of stone and remove it and put in the heart of flesh. It's the Lord that added to their number. We're not capable of saving one person. Just know that. Whatever pressure you feel for some of you who who, who are into the ministry type thing, whatever pressure you may feel and take upon yourself, we can't save one person. It's only God who can save. And it's only God who adds the number of his church. Take a deep breath. Take a deep breath. As we read through the rest of the text, don't take notes to figure out all the things we need to do and are not doing so that we can be added, that people can be added. It's only God who can do it. So they were a growing family. 
This, this family was, was marked by growth. And in verse 42, we get to the stuff that we're all familiar with. And I want you to recognize one thing about this family that God was putting together under his spirit. Not only were they a growing family, but they were a devoted family. They, they, had, they were a family that was marked by deep devotion. Look at verse 42. This number that God was adding to his people. They were devoted. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, just a, a short note, this, this word devoted that you find here in verse 42, that, that word shows up again in Acts chapter 2, verse 46. But there it's translated attending. They were attending. So this word devoted, as we try to figure out what, what that actually means, in, in one sense it, it means you attend something, you can attend yourself to something. Your mind, your, your soul, your, your will, your affection, your body, you're, you're tending to something. But it shows up again as well if you go backwards in chapter 1, Acts 1 verse 14. It was talking about this, the disciples and their, their life after, after the resurrection of Christ. And it says that they were persistent in prayer. But that word persisted in chapter 1 verse 14 is the same word we translate here, devoted. So to understand what it means to be devoted, as we look at this family that's marked by this, it, it meant not only are they attending themselves to something, not only has something caught their affection and they're, they're giving themselves over to it, but they're persistent in it. So if devotion means anything, it means persistence. That there, are, there are people that were, were persisting in something. There was something they were continually after. And then it'll show up again in Acts 6, verse 4. That great moment when the apostles look at the church and they say, you know what, there's two things that we're going to be given to. There's a lot of things that are going on that are demanding attention. We're going to give ourselves to two things, to the word and to prayer. That phrase, when they say they're giving themselves over or giving themselves, is the same word we translate here, devoted. So if we're going to understand what it means to be devoted, it means that we're attending to something. Something has caught us and, and we're attending ourselves to it. We're giving ourselves to it. It's for, it means we're persistent in something. So this, this family that God was drawing together, that we're learning to live together and, and understand what the difference in their lives meant for Jesus to be who he was and do what he did, it meant that they were a people who were devoted, persistent, giving themselves over to something. And what were they giving themselves over to? What were they persistent in? What did they have to be about? Well, that's what Luke's talking about here. And I want to make one more little note for you before we get in. I want you to note, as we talk about the things that they were devoted to, I want you to note how their devotions, the things that they're devoted to as a people, as a family, I want you to note how they're all public. Never saw that. It hit me this, this week. When we talk about devotions, if you've been around church for any period of time, what comes to your mind? You know, quiet time, Bible reading, personal devotions, you had your time today, what's your devotional life like? Whole sections in Christian bookstores called devotional life. And it's all about you being alone, sequestering yourself with you and Jesus. When God inspired his word to be written by Luke, to be read by people to understand what Jesus had begun to teach and do and what he continues to do and teach, when he begins to explain what the life of this new family that his spirit had brought together looked like, and we find that they were a devotional family, a devotional people, 
I want you to miss the things, I don't want you to miss the things they gave themselves over to were undeniably public. If they were going to be about something, it was something together. It wasn't something alone. As good as personal devotions are, and Bible reading is, and prayer is, and journaling is, and fasting to, you know, when something God has put something on your heart alone is, as good as those things are, and those disciplines are, and as necessary as they are, when it comes to understanding what it means to be the church, what it means to be a family corporate, it has nothing to do with what you do alone. Their devotions were undeniably public. And so as we read through the things that they were devoted to, I want you to ask, and I think it'll be on the screen, I want you to ask and, and think and when it comes to this family and this body and your participation in this family, are your devotions primarily private or public? What do we give ourselves over to? What are we persistent in? What are we always never seeking to stop attending to? For them, first thing they never stopped attending themselves to was the apostles' teaching. Can you imagine? Go back to what we said a minute ago. 3,000 people added to the church. One sermon. One thing. 3,000 people added to the church. New Christians beginning to continually give themselves over to the teaching of the apostles, beginning to devour an understanding of God's word that they had had since they were children, but never understood the person that it was all pointing to. And now in a moment, God has collided with their soul and their eyes have been opened and they've seen the beauty of God's glory in the face of Jesus and the Spirit has radically transformed their heart and they've been added to the church and now with the Spirit's empowerment and with the transformation that can only come from God, they're continually attending a devotion and a devouring of God's word as it comes from the apostles. Imagine the apostles, 12 of them, 3,000 people, 12 men. Can you imagine how tiring that was? I mean, I mean just, just be, don't, don't miss the humanity in this whole thing. 12 men charged and now sense the responsibility on this one day, 3,000 people needing to be taught, disciples needing to be made, questions needing to be answered, knots needing to be untied. I imagine at night, they would lay down sometimes and wonder if they'd ever get a break and wonder if they would ever take a breath, wonder if they would ever get a rest. But how could they do it? I love this stuff. How could they do it? How could 12 men teach 3,000 people in Jerusalem right there? How did, how did they do it? They built buildings. I don't know what they did. How did they do it? Look at verse 46. Luke says, Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Now see, I don't, I don't take this to mean that Every believer who believed and got baptized that day under Peter's preaching then attended the temple every single day. Don't, don't, don't read that. and Don't read that, that 3,000 people began to show up at the temple every single day for the apostles to stand there and teach. The temple was a huge place, but there was really no place in the life of the temple that was still going on. The temple was still going. There were still devout Jews showing up to the temple to make sacrifices, to, to pray. Temple life still continued as big as the porch of Solomon, which is an exterior part of the temple where people would tend to gather and, and talk and teaching would happen sometimes informally. As big as that place was, there was no place for these thousands to come where one apostle, nonetheless 12 apostles, could stand up and, and speak and project in such a way as to overwhelm the life of the temple around them so that these people could be taught and could hear. I think what began to happen is that the apostles began to teach in the 
courts of the temple, and the people day in and day out would come in different numbers. And they would come and they would hear the apostles teach. And they would come at different times and different services. And you could say that the early church was multi-service, multi-congregational. And we can have that conversation another time. But they would gather and they would listen to the apostles teach. And what would they teach? And there was no New Testament. There were no biographies of Jesus written. They would teach the, the Old Testament scriptures that the Jews were already familiar with. And they would teach all that Jesus had taught them in his 40 days with them of how at every point, along every step of the way, he was the fulfillment of it all. And they would teach the things that Jesus had taught them when they were with him for three years. And they would teach the things that Jesus taught them when he was with them for the last 40 days. And they would stand up and teach the person of Jesus. The gospel was being proclaimed day in and day out to these new believers as they were learning what it meant for it to be applied to their life and for their questions to be answered, their sins to be seen in a new and powerfully redemptive way. This is what would begin to happen. This church was devoted, persistent in the public teaching of God's word and the message of the gospel. In two and a half years, we've had to be very clear about one thing that we were very persistent in attending to. If we were going to give ourselves to one thing, if other things all fell apart, somebody didn't show up and open up the building, chairs disappeared, nobody showed up to play music, one thing we're going to do, some way, shape, form, or fashion, we were going to stand up and publicly teach the word of God as it has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus and how it applies to our life. Do you devote yourself to the public teaching of God's word? Are you devoted to it? Are you in the habit, Paul would later say, or the writer of Hebrews, I think it's Paul, but Paul would later say, are you in the habit of some, as of some of neglecting gathering together with God's people and God's family? Do you think that this is another thing that just falls in your schedule that you come and do or you don't do that really inherent in what we do, there is no real experience going on? You're coming to hear a guy talk in a gym. Or do you believe that when the word of God is opened and the spirit of God is present and the faithful proclamation of God's word goes forward, something begins to happen in the presence of, of God's people? That's what scripture would begin to say. And so they're devoted to this. They were devoted to the teaching of God's word. They were hungry for God's word. They couldn't get enough of it. So there's something about when God's spirit creates a, a family and creates a people that it creates in that family a devotion to and a hunger for and a persistence in the teaching and the understanding of, of God's word. And these guys continually persisted in driving themselves to it. It's amazing. But what else? We gotta keep going. Uh, listen, we should, Ray, we're gonna do a whole series on these. We should have to stop and do a whole series on these. Yeah, this is really painful. For those of you who know me, this is painful to have to go through all of these at once. I want to take a time on all of these things, like a series on all of these things. So we're going to keep going. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and, and, and fellowship. So they didn't just devote themselves and persist in coming together and listen to the apostles teach. They didn't just devote themselves to gathering the information and, and listening and, and learning and seeing how Jesus fulfilled all of these things. They devoted themselves to figuring out how to live it out together, how to actually be a family how to actually take what was being taught and what was being fulfilled and what was being renewed in their understanding and then apply it to their life and, and live it out together. And you see, as, as, for as long as we, as we exchange the, the family that God has created for an institution that we can put together and manage, we're, we're going to miss this. 
For as long as we persist in exchanging the family that God has created for an institution that we can build and manage, we're going to miss what they've devoted themselves to here. We're going to miss this. Because you can always join an institution, but you can avoid ever having to become a part of the family. And as long as we persist in making church an institution, ultimately I think we'll, we'll miss what he's talking about here in fellowship. Because we can become so devoted to the acclamation and, and accumulation, sorry, of knowledge and, and information, and then we can organize ourselves to do nice and, and simple acts of service in such a way that we can convince ourselves that we've actually experienced what God's talking about when he talks about fellowship here, but never really actually devote ourselves to one another. Never really actually give ourselves over to one another. You see, one of the things I was realizing about myself and about the church as I was studying this is that this is one of the ideas and, and one of the words that we've absolutely butchered in church culture. I grew up in the church. I, I, I was not a, a hardened atheist or, or agnostic growing up and some radical experience like Paul on a donkey when I was in my 20s. I grew up in the church. I grew up in a great family and a great church. Um, I was always around church things. Um, but I was always converted to the institution of the church, and it, it wasn't until my early 20s that I actually understood who the person and, and what the work of Jesus was and what difference that made in my life, and I actually got saved. But I'd actually been around it all my life and had become so accustomed to it, and, and this is one of the ideas that I think if you've been around the church for a long time and you've breathed that air for a long time, that you, you absolutely miss the poignancy and the power of what's being said. I mean, we've butchered fellowship with, with cookies and, and coffee, and with, with conversation with each other, hey, hey, brother, wasn't that great fellowship last night when we were sitting there watching the game? Or, hey, man, we had such great fellowship in the five minutes before the sermon actually started. Wasn't that great? Or we go and we build buildings and we devote a whole section of the building over to the hall that's called the fellowship hall. And somehow in our mind, this idea of fellowship means getting together and patting each other on the back and hanging out with other people who are around in the church. But it's not at all what the Bible would demonstrate that fellowship actually is. Here in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, when Luke uses this word fellowship, he uses this interesting word called koinonia. And without going into it too much, the, the root idea in this word koinonia is a commonness or a commonality. And you'll see in just a second when we read about it, in, in verse 44, he talks about how all the people had all things together in common with one another. Their possessions were in, in common with one another. The same word is being, the same root word is being used there. And if we were to just look at that word briefly, when it pops up in, in the Bible, you'll see that where it's used in other places is always talking about the relationship in some way, shape, form, or fashion between the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and how because of God's grace demonstrated to us through Jesus, through the life that we live together, we're somehow invited to participate in the same level of fellowship that God has in and amongst himself because of who Jesus is and what he's done. I mean, I'll give you an example. 1 John 1, 3. John says that, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. Sounds like a witness, doesn't it? That's, remember what a witness does. He tells what he's seen, he tells what he heard, he's heard. So John says, we proclaim to you what we've seen and what we've heard so that you may also have fellowship, koinonia, with us. And our fellowship, koinonia, is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. So when we talk about fellowship, we're, we're actually being encouraged and, and, and being invited into an experience of commonality and togetherness and, and community, if we use that word, that's to replicate and in some way magnify the commonality and the fellowship that God experiences in the Father and the Son and, and the Holy Spirit. And we have that capacity because of the grace that he's given us through Jesus. 
So when we actually gather together, we devote ourselves to one another, we devote ourselves to the fellowship, we're actually together experiencing, because of the gospel, the same type of commonality, communion, relationship that God experiences in and of himself. See, they didn't devote themselves to the the fellowship program. They didn't devote themselves to the small group program because it was something that they had to do because they were at church and church people go and do these things and if we're going to be a healthy church and you've got to do these things so that people can find their pathways in. They didn't devote themselves to a program. They devoted themselves to the idea that because of the gospel and the grace of God poured out, when they gathered together and they remembered that and celebrated that and had their life in common, they were experiencing the same depth of relationship and community that God himself experienced. And we butcher it. We rob it of all of its meaning and of all of its depth and of all of its power when we try to simplify what it is into some kind of program or thing that we have to do. They devoted themselves to the pursuit of depth and honesty and togetherness that that God alone offers through his grace. Because as we give ourselves out to one another in the same way that he has given himself over to us, we have the opportunity to experience the same kind of thing. A few weeks ago, a friend of mine was actually preaching on this down in Raleigh, and he he said this line that just stuck with me. He said, the lifeblood of the family of God, the lifeblood, so get a body image in your head, the lifeblood of the family of God is the gospel that runs through the veins of biblical fellowship, of biblical community. The lifeblood of the family is the gospel that runs through the veins of biblical koinonia. They didn't just devote themselves to Peter's teaching and show up at the temple every day to get his tape and get him to spin up a site and download his sermons and and spend their time alone in their car listening to his teaching and all the nuances of his teaching and all the things that he could say so they could file away all the quotes that Peter had said so that when they ran into a friend on the street the next day, they could spit out something from the file bank in their mind that Peter said that might apply to their life somewhere. They didn't just devote themselves to Peter and his teaching and the other apostles. They devoted themselves to a surrender to the word of God as it was proclaimed through the apostles and then a devoting themselves to working that out together, to the togetherness that could only be brought together or could be had because of God's spirit. Our friend who was preaching, he said, so let's not devote ourselves just to learning, but also to doing real life together. The early Christians had a fierce commitment to one another with that. And if you look around, it's the one thing lacking in our churches today that we're so desperate for, but we can't put our finger on it. I mean, look at verse 44. How many of you can raise your hand to, to experiencing this? I won't ask you to do it. I won't make you do it. But in verse 44. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. I mean, here, here's biblical fellowship for you. Koinonia for you. These people are so devoted to doing life together and living together in such a way that when one person has a need, when one person has a hurt, when one person has a difficulty, the community itself gives itself over to figuring out a way to make the pain there stop. I mean, the people sense a a collective responsibility to make the pain stop. I mean, these are the people that are living out the biblical mandate of, of mourning with those who mourn and rejoicing with those who rejoice. Their commitment to one another and their fellowship together, their koinonia together runs so deep 
They pursue it with such passion. They're so persistent in it that when things fall apart, they sense their responsibility to make it stop. Whatever was mine is, is yours. Just make it stop. And don't push back on me and think we're talking about some type of Christian communism and giving. Read Acts. They all had personal property. They all kept homes. Don't, don't push back and be silly with that stuff. They were pursuing a life together born out of an understanding of the gospel that ran so deep and was so strong that they felt their responsibility to step in to one another's lives to see hurt stop. And if we're honest, the best that we would come up with today on our best day is a tweet that says, oh, I'm sorry that that happened. And we feel like we did our part. Oh, I communicated. I let them know I was thinking. I was praying. And now we can excuse ourselves from feeling any sense of responsibility or burden to step in and help alleviate a pain and a hurt. We just write about it on the internet. The place where we don't have to actually look anybody in the eye. We can craft our image and craft our language in such a way because it's the written word, not the spoken word. You can craft it in such a way that you can be the person that you want to be. You can have read the books that you think you need to read. You can say it in just such a way that it's witty enough, but not too witty that it looks like you thought too much about it. When it comes down to actually looking someone in the eye and feeling a sense of responsibility for their welfare, for their life, for feeling like when they hurt, you hurt. When they mourn, you mourn. When they rejoice, you rejoice. If you're honest, that's what's missing. And no small group program and no class structure and no keep everybody in one service so we see each other forever. None of that stuff fixes that. And here's the problem. Is as long as you continue to sensitize, desensitize yourself to it, Keep yourself at a distance from other people and the, and the struggles that they go through. As long as you continue to desensitize your world to the realities of hurt and pain in the lives of those around you, it's going to come back to get you. Because one day, you're going to lose your job. One day, it's your kid that's going to be sick. One day, it's your world that's going to fall apart. And you've done such a good job at desensitizing yourself to actually doing life with other people that when you are the one wondering where everybody is when your world falls apart, you have to realize that you're the one that kept yourself away from everybody else. Biblical fellowship. It's a fierce commitment. Not only to the teaching of Jesus and the word and the scriptures, it's a fierce commitment to pursue the, the depths and the reality of what it means to live life together to take what he has taught and what he has undone in our hearts and figure out how together that applies to our lives and, and the way that we live. It, I, won't, I won't want to harp on that too long. So let me say this. I'm going to be honest. Why is that so hard? I mean, why is it so hard? Look at the gospel the very spirit of God drawing us together, transforming our hearts, empowering us to be who we're supposed to be. Why is this depth of community, this koinonia, this fellowship so hard? And here's what I'll say from my own life, my own experience, and I think it translates pretty well. The type of fellowship that the Bible is talking about that's produced through the gospel and empowered by God's spirit is one that requires absolute honesty, persistence, 
authenticity, sacrifice, openness, all the things that are just dreaded in our culture. All the things that we are taught from a very early age to run in the opposite direction of. It's all about me and my and individual rights and individual property and individual person and my thing and your thing. To live this way involves an honesty and an openness that scares the living daylights out of us. It does. But here's the thing. You can only have this type of fellowship, this type of community, this type of life together, this koinonia, when you lay all of your cards out on the table. That's the only time it happens. That, that is the only time that you will ever experience it is when you are finally honest enough to be who you are right now as I look at you. It's only when we're, we're honest with who we are and what's really going on in our lives and what we're struggling with and, and what we're doing right. It's only in those times and in those places and together like that that we actually experience this kind of fellowship. And, and here's why. Because when you're pretending, when you're in relationship with other people and you're gathering to do life together and you're pretending and you've got your little deal on and you've got all the things to say and you can tell all the points of the sermon and you can talk about how much you read in your Bible this day and that day and you have all these outward exterior things and this facade going on. When you're pretending with other people, here's the thing. You'll never ever really be able to know if the attention and the care they give you is because they love you or not. Don't miss this. When you consistently pretend with other people, you'll never ever know if they actually love you or not because you've never given them a chance to really know you. For all the care that you receive, all the love that you receive, all the attention that you receive, you'll always have this inkling of doubt because what if they really knew what was going on? I mean, what if they really knew who I was? What if they really knew what I was struggling with? And I can't do that. The gospel is not big enough for that. Grace is not big enough for that. So let me put on this facade that'll make them happy with me. Let me put on this thing that, that, that projects this image of what I think I'm supposed to be and we'll go and we'll do life together and we'll drink coffee together and we'll eat cookies together and, and we'll have fellowship. And all along, deep inside of your heart and aching in your soul, you don't know if anybody really loves you because you've never given them a chance to love you. You've created a distance, not only between yourself and others, but between the one God who can actually heal you and restore you and transform you. You've created a distance now, not only between us, but between you and God. And here's the irony of the whole thing. I mean, choke on the irony, if this is you, a little bit. Scripture says that it's the humble and contrite of heart and spirit that Jesus loves that Jesus never tires of. It's the humble and contrite of spirit that Jesus is in the consistent habit of forgiving and healing and restoring and redeeming. Yet it's those who flap their lips about who he is, but their hearts are far from him that he so hates. It's the hypocrisy of the pretending that he so hates. And so we work so hard to cultivate this image that projects this relationship with him the fact is we don't really know him and our hearts are far from him and we're creating distance between one another with our pretending and we're creating distance between us and the one who can truly save us and heal us and redeem us from the thing that we're hiding. We find ourselves just alone. 
we find ourselves lost and on an island. And people may want to hang out with us. It might be funny. It might be entertaining. We might have good stories. We might be able to quote what the last person said on the MP3 you listen to, and people might want to hang out with you, but there's no way you can receive any of their attention and love as genuine affection or genuine concern because you've been pretending. You've never been able to tell them who you really are, what you really struggle with, the things you really fear, the things you really doubt. You've never been able to express truly in your heart where your joy comes from in relation to the gospel of something in your life. Because you've kept yourself at a distance from it. Koinonia, fellowship. It's not just getting together, but there's a sincerity of heart in it. There's a pursuit of something deep that can only come from a trust in the gospel and the grace of God. There's a gospel-centeredness and a grace-drivenness to it. It's an opportunity to experience together with one another the depth of the relationship that God experiences in himself, in the Godhead. So around here, we, we talk a bit about being a people who want to be increasingly pursuing the depth of community. I mean, if we're going to be persistent in something and devote ourselves to something, we're going to devote ourselves to the teaching of God's word, to the proclamation of the scriptures, to the surrendering of our hearts to the word of God and a pursuit of the depth of this type of community, a pursuit of the depth of, of, of this type of fellowship that can only come because of the gospel. Don't deflect this on me and, and say, can we never just get together and watch a football game? Every time we get together, we have to poke each other with forks and talk about what hurts and what doesn't hurt. Don't deflect your lack of willingness to be honest with other people on me, okay? There's an attitude and a persistence and a devotion to living a life together that comes from a trust and a hope in the gospel that can only come when we're willing to lay our cards out on the table. To be who we are, to express our doubts, to express our fears, and to allow one another to express the hope and the encouragement that comes alone from the gospel. It's only when we do that that true fellowship and community actually exists. Everything else is just superficial chatter. Welcome to have it. It's great. But don't exchange it and mistake it for something that it's not. And so when we think about this church being a family and the things that we're going to devote ourselves to, make no mistake, we devote ourselves to two things the word of God, and the pursuit of community. How we do that and the things that become necessary to make that work, just like the apostles had to figure that out with 3,000, we try to figure it out the best we can. But here's the thing, we can't institutionalize it. I can't institutionalize this kind of community for you. The best thing that we can do is say that throughout the week we gather together in, in homes and we have the heart and the intention to cultivate in those environments the type of community that's only possible because of the gospel. But I am no fool. You can show up to that week in and week out and continue to pretend. I am not under any illusion that we can put something together to help cultivate this thing that we're after and then look around and go, oh, it didn't happen. Look, you can show up and you continue to pretend. All we can do is create an environment where we can pursue this together we can devote ourselves to this together. You can still show up and pretend. 
And it's going to take you actually showing up and devoting yourselves to one another and laying your cards out on the table and trusting that the gospel is big enough. That Jesus' life and death and resurrection is big enough for what you're dealing with and what you're doubting and what you're fearing. The people that God has put in your place are enough to encourage you in that. You see, when we do that, when we gather together, we get to experience something that's only possible because of him. I can't make it happen. I can't make it happen any more than I can add numbers to the church. It's something that you have to show up and participate in. And this is what we're after. And this is what we devote ourselves to. This is what we're going to continue to devote ourselves to. So as we pray, I'm going to pray for us. And as you go out this week and you continue to pray for the church, pray that we be a people that devote ourselves to these things. That for all the things that can distract us and all the things that can come around, that corporately, as a family, we devote ourselves to the messy reality of the surrendering of our souls to God's word and the pursuit of the depth of community that can only come because of the gospel. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity that we have together to come and to collectively as a people surrender ourselves to your word and and trust that your word is strong enough and powerful enough and large enough to, to change our heart of stones into a heart of flesh. And Lord, we ask for the strength and the willingness to pursue the things that come from being changed by your spirit. That as a church, we would pursue the things that glorify you, that we would pursue a trust in your word and a teaching of your word and a hope that comes from your word and we would pursue the depth of really doing our life together. We wouldn't exchange those two things for lesser pleasures. Let us not exchange those things for lesser options. But let us be like those 3,000 who upon hearing the word of God, hearing the gospel proclaimed, devoted themselves to surrendering to that word and pursuing life together. We ask this, Lord, that your name would be made known and your glory would be exalted. Amen.